Brett, I know you always say good afternoon first. I'm going to say it today. Good afternoon. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you on this Thursday afternoon. How are you doing today, Brett? I'm doing well. How are you, Mr. Greg? I'm doing great. I want to thank you on air for holding down the fort this morning while I was down at St. Vitale Center. Last opportunity for the uh, St. B Mega Million Choices lottery tickets. And it'll be the last day that I interrupt your dinner, your hockey game, what have you, whatever you're watching on TV with uh, the commercials. It'll be done uh, about midnight tonight. You're tired of seeing yourself on TV? No, I know people are tired of seeing me. So I want (laughs) to apologize for that. Uh, We really need you to support the the work at the St. Boniface Hospital and the foundation. Just so many things uh, going on there that require public support outside of uh, provincial support. So I just, A, want to apologize for being such a pain in the neck for the last few weeks and, and bugging you uh, in your living room. It's not bad enough that we're in your car and and in the uh, and in the office, but uh, I'm in your living room in the evening, so I, I apologize for that, but I appreciate everybody who supports the uh, the work of uh, St. B and the, the incredible uh, researchers, doctors, nurses, uh, everyone over at St. Boniface Hospital that's listening today. I want to give them a big shout out. Um... In this business, when you get a letter, like an old-fashioned letter, yes, you're a little tentative to open it <laughs> because typically if someone's taken the time to handcraft a letter, you know it's going to be passionate. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. Correct. You don't know what side of an issue it's going to be on or the individual is going to be on and, and if they're giving you heck for something. Well, I got a letter today and I have to admit... It is like when you're a kid, right? Oh, I got mail. Yes. Right? (laughs) Handwritten, Greg Mackling, 680 CGOB, Unit 200, 1440, Jack Black Avenue, Winnipeg, Manitoba, R3GOL4. I know it's not in your handwriting. It's far too neat to be your printing. My handwriting is deplorable. (laughs) So I open this uh, envelope with a little trepidation because you never know what's inside. But I could tell it wasn't only a letter, that there was there were maybe some gifts attached. Something uh, outside of a, of a normal-sized 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper okay. was inside. And so I open up the letter, <laughs> and it says, Dear Greg, and I'm reading it to myself. And in moments, I was in stitches. Because this is one of the most well-crafted, entertaining pieces of literature I've ever received. (laughs) And it's in tribute to you, my friend. The individual (laughs) remains nameless and anonymous because they did not sign it, did not include their name. But they're very worried about you. Oh, no. (laughs) Would you like me to read it? Sure. (laughs) Dear Greg, so far so good. I'm writing to you on the most urgent of matters. I've come to notice that every time I turn on my radio, Brett is there. (laughs) Be it morning, noon, or night, weekdays or weekends, he is there. As a couch potato, the news guy, or just talking with you, Brett is always there. The obvious conclusion is that he lives there. I don't know if there is a cot set up in the newsroom so he can nap between updates or perhaps he nestles under the stairs like a feral cat, my favorite line of the entire letter. I can only hope that Jeff has hooked him up with one of the fancy pillows he keeps peddling. That's that's 1B in my favorite. Either way, the outlook is grim. 
You are clearly Brett's Radioland BFF. I have heard you defend him against Richard's nefarious attacks. And so I turn to you. Please get that guy out of the building. You could grab a coffee at Timmy's or go across the parking lot to see a movie. Maybe for a real treat, you could take him for a car ride <laughs> to the fancy A&W on the other side of Portage Avenue. Ooh la la. Your mission is clear. I'm including some items to help you on your way. Godspeed, good sir. A concerned listener. Included A&W coupons. So we can get like some two for one deals here. Team yes. combo, two for eleven, two can dine for eleven ninety nine. I like their uh two teen burgers for seven dollars. Outstanding uh, offers here from our friends at Arthur and Willis. I do enjoy or Alan and breakfast. Wright, whatever it is. Sorry? I do enjoy their breakfast. What yeah, are the breakfasts are good? Do they have any deals here for the breakfast? And uh, some Tim Hortons coupons as well. I didn't even know that uh, Timmy's ever put out coupons. I didn't so either. So to whoever sat down and 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 typed out this lovely and uh, concerning piece of literature towards the well-being of my Radioland BFF. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for noticing, A, that Brett works as hard as anyone in radio, period, dot, and for doing something about it. I also want to thank you, this concerned listener. I hope you're listening right now. This This may be... I mean, it's hilarious, and I love the comedy that is involved. But this is seriously, this is I'm I'm really touched by this that uh, you took the time to type up this letter, and that you included these coupons uh, because I, I I could use some nourishment. So, <laughs> feral cats got to eat somewhere. Feral cats typically eat wherever they can get food. And now I have access to it. There you go. So maybe the analogy is uh, much more accurate than we might have imagined. Well, I think at this point, we should probably pause before we begin our next conversation. Before we do, as uh, as Charles Adler used to say, I think he would call it a a samurai segue into another segment. We're going to pause for your forecast. But, and again, thank you so much for that letter. We have posted the letter, by the way, and a picture of the coupons at our <laughs> Facebook page at cjob.com. And uh, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, someone has suggested I should frame it and put it up on my wall, and I am very tempted to do so. It's 112 on Mackling and McGarry. Your forecast up next. Brett McGarry, I know you used to be a huge basketball fan, college basketball in particular. Indeed. And, of course, March Madness continues. The Sweet 16 starts tonight. Exciting. We, we won't get into all the matchups because for most people, they're completely irrelevant. Uh, the women's March Madness also continues. The University of Connecticut Huskies, the women's team there. And I always worried that I'm not uh, going to say this man's name right. Gino Ariema is their head coach. They have compiled a 109-game winning streak. Impressive. Going back to 1992-93, I think in the season since, they've never lost more than three games in a season. And I believe when I did the math yesterday, they've lost a total of about 11 games in uh, the last, how many years is that, 25 years? Wow. It's absolutely incredible how they've dominated this sport. Now, many people may not realize that 
the record the University of Connecticut women's team broke at the collegiate level belonged to the University of Winnipeg Westman women, who won 88 games in a row in a span from 1992 to 1995. And in fact, they had tied John Wooden, the legendary men's coach of the UCLA Bruins, with that 88th consecutive victory. They lost their 89th game to the University of Manitoba. And, well, Tom Kendall was their head coach at the time, and we caught up with him just before we came on air today. We had a chat about the 88 in a row, and we wanted to compare the 88 in a row to the 109 in a row. But more importantly, we wanted to talk a little bit about something that Coach Ariyama had said, post-game comments, the video of which have gone absolutely viral. Recruiting enthusiastic kids is harder than it's ever been. Because every kid watches TV and they watch the NBA or they watch Major League Baseball or they watch the NFL, whatever sport they watch, WNBA, it doesn't matter. And what they see is people just being really cool. So they think that's how they're going to act. And they haven't, they haven't even figured out which foot to use as a pivot foot, and they're going to act like they're really good players. You see it all the time. You see it at every AAU tournament. You see it at every high school game. So recruiting kids that are, like, really upbeat and loving life and love the game and have this tremendous appreciation for when their teammates do something well, that's hard. That's hard. It's really hard. So on our team... We, me, my coaching staff, we put a huge premium on body language. And if your body language is bad, you will never get in the game. Ever. I don't care how good you are. If somebody says, well, you know, you just benched Stewie for, you know, 35 minutes in the Memphis game a couple years ago. Yeah, I did. Oh, that was to motivate her for the South Carolina game the following Monday. No, it wasn't. Stewie was acting like a 12-year-old. So I put her on the bench and said, sit there. It doesn't matter on our team. Now, the other coaches might say, well, you can do that because you got three other, you know, All-Americans. I get that. I understand that. But I'd rather lose than watch kids play the way some kids play. I'd rather lose. And they're allowed to get away with just whatever. And they're always thinking about themselves. Me, 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 me. I didn't score, so why should I be happy? I'm not getting enough minutes. Why should I be happy? That's the world that we live in today, unfortunately. Me, 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 me. Interesting, right? When you think about the world of team sport, I imagine and I recall having to be fairly unselfish. Mm -hmm. If you think about the workplace, you think about family, it's critical that you're unselfish. And one of the great quotes about sport is sport doesn't develop character. It reveals it. And coach Ariyama, when he's talking about this, that's, I think about that quote just about the entire way through. And what can we learn from that? This, this whole idea of body language and about how you carry yourself, how critical that is in everyday life in sport, great message for young people. But also just this idea of of being a team player, 
And it's a really good reminder of why we need to be a certain way. I know in this environment, we do a lot of things on our own, but we can't do anything by ourselves without the help of others. It's it's an interesting dichotomy, and I think a lot of people's job are that way. And it really stinks when you've got to deal with someone with bad body language and a bad attitude. That's why sports, I think, are so important to, to, to play at least at some level when you are a child or a teenager because you really do learn the value of being a part of a team. And as far as the me, me, me stuff goes, I can actually kind of relate to that. I remember in, I, I want to say it was grade 11, I was on the volleyball team. I wasn't very good at volleyball, but I liked playing volleyball and I, I liked being a part of the team. And these guys were, because I went to a small school, it was always the same guys on pretty much every team. So I was always on the lower tier and that's fine. Uh, it was I mean, partly because in grade 10, I, I rolled my ankle really bad and I never, I was never good, but after that I was much worse at everything. <laughs> I lost <laughs> any, any sort of, uh, I was actually a ferocious basketball player. I wasn't good, but I worked hard. I was insane. After I hurt myself, that kind of went away, but in volleyball, I was never good, but I liked playing it and I wanted to be a part of the team. And, uh, there was one game where I hadn't played and I, I always butted heads with that particular coach because he was our gym teacher as well. <laughs> we never seemed to get along. And I finally just said to him, like, am I gonna am I gonna play at some point? I know that I'm not the best player, but I'd like to get a couple of minutes. And if I'm not gonna play, then what am I doing here? So he sent me home and that was it. Like I like I He, he sent you home. He sent me home and I quit the team. Or I think he actually kicked me maybe he kicked me off the team. I think I can't remember if it was if he kicked me off or if I quit. But as I look back on that, I look back on it with regret because especially after hearing this audio from, from Gino, it's, it's true. You know, if you're, I had a bad attitude and I didn't deserve to play as I look back on it in hindsight. At the time I was fuming mad that I didn't get to play, but I didn't deserve to play and I wasn't good enough to play anyway. So it, it helped the team. In the end, it was good for the team. But uh, I st- it's, it's a valuable lesson to th- for young people to learn that it's not always about you. Well, I have to admit my biggest regret in uh, athletics was I, uh, I had a similar con- conversation with my high school football coach. I played one year of high school, uh, played mostly bantam and, and midget uh, football, uh, but played one year at my high school and went to my coach and asked him a very similar question. And he put me in my place and said, you got to earn your spot. And we were preparing for a game and I had a multitude of other responsibilities. I had a job. My stepdad was working up north, et cetera, et cetera. Not an excuse, just a reason. And it was taking a lot of my time. And I realized it's taking up too much of my time. And I walked off the field in the middle of a practice. And, you know, if I could go back in time and change one thing from high school, it would be that. Really? That's the one thing? Does it yeah. ha- Does it ever haunt you? It does. It bothers me. It bothers me that uh, I let down people that were my friends at the time. I wasn't contributing to the team in a positive way. And I look back on that now and I go, boy, that was not a genuine reflection of who I was. To just the the walking off, you mean? Yeah, just the whole thing, the whole experience of the way I handled not playing. I wasn't used to not playing. 
But mm. there's a hierarchy, and there was things that you had to do to earn your spot. And, uh, yeah, so if there's any uh, 1987 Daniel Mac Maroons out there, <laughs> I want to apologize to every single one of you. And I guess it was the 1986 season because I graduated in 87. So it would have been in 86 and in 87, uh, the year after I graduated, the, 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 the fall of the summer that I graduated, that team ended up going to provincial championships. They got clobbered by Brandon in the championship. Uh, but it was a good group of guys. And uh, I let them down. And like I said, it's one of my big regrets uh, from my high school days. And I, I wish I could go back in time and, and correct that entire thing. I uh, I don't regret not being a part of that team because, like I said, I wasn't any good, and I had actually, I had, I think I cost. <laughs> oh God, I'm just I've just opened a, a vault into some painful memories here. I think in one in a playoff game, I I think I cost the team a game with a play. Now that I that's that's why I don't revisit that memory in particular. Well, I apologize for taking you no, down no. this road. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's important to remember where you've been. So I will also extend the apologies if there's anybody from. College Pierre Elliott Trudeau, circa 93, graduated 95 on the volleyball teams. Sorry, guys. So let's open the phone lines and text messages. Maybe some of your lessons that you learned from sport, from being a part of team sport. You listen to Gino's comments there. Uh, does that ring true? You know, kids of today, I don't know how, you know, we try and make this generational. I don't know how different kids were, how different we were. Uh, back when we were playing sport, the good old days, I think there were there were always those that that uh, walked a little bit differently and and walked the walk and talked the talk. They could do both, and, and others that walked the walk but couldn't talk the talk. And uh, I'd be curious to to know if you've got some regrets or you've got some lessons that you really learned from sport. And also, we'll visit uh, and play for you that interview, that conversation with Tom Kendall the former coach of the Winnipeg University of Winnipeg Westman women's team that won 88 games in a row. We'll get some insight from him as to what makes a good team, what makes a good teammate, what makes a good player. And uh, we'll do that uh, following global news and weather at the bottom of the hour. Brett McGarry uh, going to assume the, is that the feral cat position <laughs> or is that uh, you're going to catch a little bit of a nap on the cot on your way over to deliver the news? Before I become a newsman, a serious Newsman. That's right. Change your hat, buddy. Change your hat. (laughs) Global News up next. The head coach for the University of Connecticut women's basketball team that's won 109 games in a row, Gino Oriyama, claims that, quote, recruiting enthusiastic kids is harder than it's ever been. He attributes that to the players they look up to on their TV screen who are, quote, unquote, just being really cool. Is this a new phenomenon? And this is translated and cascaded into a discussion about the benefit of sport, some of the things that you may have learned about yourself by participating in sport, and we will uh, play for you a conversation that we had with Tom Kendall, the former coach of the University of Winnipeg women's basketball team, which won 88 games in a row from October 92 to November of 94. They also won three CIS championships between 1993 and 1995. But in the meantime, we want to get your comments on things you may have learned in sport. Cam joins us at 204-780-6868. Hey, Cam, what did you learn? Oh, afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, I learned uh, a few things. Uh, patience, perseverance, the ability to lose and win with grace, and the ability to uh, eat spits like a champ. <laughs> 
I never learned how to, I, I still can't eat sunflower seeds. No? No, I never figured it out. You know those big one kilogram bags? Yeah. I used to eat one of those per game. <laughs> so you spent a lot of time on the bench? Uh, no, but uh, I, I, I could mush them into my mouth like a chipmunk. <laughs> Good for you, Cam. That's an interesting skill to pick up on the baseball diamond. The big league chew. So as referenced, we spoke with Tom Kendall earlier. He is the former coach back in the heyday of the University of Winnipeg women's basketball program. I will remind you, many people may not remember this, but this program actually won 88 games in a row from October 1992 to November 1994. In the process, they won three CIS championships from 1993 to 1995. CIS is now called University Sports or U Sports. Tom Kendall joining us now from Guelph, Ontario. Uh, Coach Kendall, thanks for taking some time today. You're very welcome, Greg. So what was it like to be at the helm of a, a group of women who 88 times consecutively went out on the court and accomplished uh, most of the things that, that you asked them to do? Well, they were a pretty, um, they were a pretty remarkable group. I, um, uh, I, I mean, the opportunity to have a team that is uh, that consistent and that committed um, it's pretty unique, and uh, I just consider myself really fortunate to have had the opportunity to coach them. So when you win 88 games in a row, how do you maintain the team's composure? Because at some point, the streak has got to become something that is sort of always in the back of their mind. Interestingly, um, it wasn't. Um, and I think that's why we managed to go for 88 games without that loss is the fact that that never became an issue for us. Um, I, I, we all understood that at some point this streak was going to end. And so understanding that, that it's inevitable, there's no point in worrying about it. It's like death and taxes. They're, all going, they're both going to occur, and worrying about it doesn't really help. So we always took the view that if we were already the best team in the country and every single day in practice uh, we tried to get better, then things should work out the way they should work out. And, and, and in fact, that's, that's pretty much what happened. So if my memory serves and my research is correct and Brett's research is correct, did the 88 victories in fact tie the UCLA Bruins uh, men's collegiate record at 88? That's correct. Um, it, 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 it tied John Wooden's record uh, at 88 games, for sure. And it was the University of Manitoba Bison, your, your cross-town rival, that actually uh, put an end to the streak, and they, and they were a team that, if it's fair to say, uh, maybe shouldn't have beaten you. Correct. We had a 12-point lead at halftime, and um, uh, they played very well. Uh, and uh, we played well too. It just was one of those games where we lost a little bit, bit of momentum in the second half, and and they um, they had the ball last, and and they, and so they won the game. But um, yeah, it was um, it was impressive. Um, uh, the, well, actually, that that particular game uh, had a huge national um, audience on TV, and uh, it was a um, it was a big deal at that time, and so um, disappointing uh, for sure, but 
I think what happened after that was probably the most satisfying thing for me in terms of a coach uh, of a team that uh, that had won 88 games straight. And that was the fact that um, we um, we got on a plane right after that, two days later, went to Hawaii, uh, played in a Division One tournament, beat three Division One teams to win that, came back to Canada, didn't lose a game for the rest of the year, and won our third national title. That said to me that these the, that these particular athletes had it all in perspective, so that when the inevitable happened, which we knew it would, uh, they didn't they didn't lose they didn't lose a step. They just kept playing the way they'd been playing, and and went on to win that third title. How much does uh, attitude factor into making a good team versus just raw skill? Like, can you have a winning team with just skilled players, or do they have to have good attitudes? No, they they have to be selfless. Um, if if you have athletes that that are concerned about their points, about their playing time. Um, then you're probably not going to have a winning team because it just becomes too disruptive. So, uh, for a team like for a team to be that successful, um, you have to have athletes that play for each other, that are less concerned about the individual accolades and more concerned about the, about what the team does. And I think that we turned over a fair number of athletes in that three year period, and every single one of them, uh, as they came in. Uh, bought into the culture that we had there, and um, and just basically uh, basically uh, sacrificed themselves for the, for the rest of the program. And um, I, I think um, I think you have to have that. Uh, I think attitude is um, is very important. Tom Kendall was the University of Winnipeg women's basketball team head coach when they won 88 games in a row. We're reminiscing about that streak. In the shadows and in light of the 109-game winning streak, the University of Connecticut women's team has put together, and we've played the comments of coach Gino Ariema and those comments have gone viral about the the attitude of athletes today and I think that's where Brett was going with his last question Tom and this whole idea of you know I've spoken to coach Doby and and a variety of collegiate coaches over the year and the idea of raising and creating better individuals better human beings versus better athletes seems to be the ultimate goal of coaches like yourself. Well, it has to be. Um, if you know, um, people have asked me about my legacy as a coach, and and uh, my legacy in terms of in terms of coaching is the relationships that we still have with with athletes that we coached twenty twenty five years ago. And uh, for me, it's all about relationships, and it's all about helping people grow, particularly young people, uh, to become better adults. And I, I just think that. Uh, I'm proud of what we did at at, uh, at Winnipeg, and um, uh, you know I think a lot of those uh, a lot of those players have gone on to be very successful uh, parents and very successful successful professionals. So we're pretty proud of that. What do you say to to young people? Maybe they're playing junior high sports or high school sports, and they're not getting enough playing time because maybe they're not the best player on the team. But you know, when they're they're still teenagers, you know, you want to learn, and you can't learn without getting playing time. So, I guess my question is: At what point should young people be less concerned about playing time and be more concerned about being a part of a team? 
Well, if you go in the gym every day and practice, uh, and if you practice more than everybody else, and if you do it, if you pay attention to detail and do it the right way, playing time doesn't become a problem after that because you'll get it because you'll get better. Uh, the thing is, the thing is that that athletes, young athletes, have to understand that unless you unless you have unless God has given you uh, unbelievable gifts, you have to work for it. And uh, not only do you have to work hard, but you have to work and pay attention to details so that so that every part of your skill game uh, is is the way it should be. Then, if you do that, then um, you're going to get you're going to get uh, floor time, and uh, you're going to be successful. Being coach is like being president. You're always coach. So, Coach Kendall, one last one before we let you go. Uh, uh, coach uh, Ariema's comments, I, I know that I sent you the article. I hope you got a chance to watch the video and his comments. And this whole idea of body language and how you carry yourself on and off the court, an extension of Brett's comments and, and your answer, this whole idea of, of acting like someone who cares and, and, and genuinely being one. How important is that as well? Well, I think it is. I think I think Gina was right. Um, fortunately, um, he has he, he is able to select athletes with a positive attitude uh, before they get to his program. The only problem I have with the comment is that sometimes body language is not a reflection of attitude. Sometimes it can be a reflection of uh, uncertainty or, or lack of confidence. Sometimes it can be uh, an expression of uh, a personal problem. And I think most coaches, 95% of coaches, will have athletes that struggle with those issues, and it's their job to to help them deal with them so that their body language can become positive. But I, I think I think there's a distinction between that body language issue and the attitude issue, which he, which is what he was referring to. And the, certainly, you have to have you have to have the right attitude. But I think sometimes body language is deceptive because it may be something that has nothing to do with a positive or negative attitude. So um, he's right for sure. And uh, uh, who would question him with uh, with the, with the kind of record that he has? But I think he's very fortunate to have the kind of athletes that he's able to recruit every year. Well, it's a marvelous record that you accumulated over those three years, Coach Kendall. Uh, an incredible record that will likely never be broken, 109 games and growing from the University of Connecticut. Ironic that we visit with you on this day when Winnipeg's own Billy Mozienko, the anniversary of him scoring three goals in 21 seconds. There's another record that'll never be broken, in my opinion. Coach Kendall, thanks for this, and good luck in your retirement. I hope you carry your fond uh, memories of, of Winnipeg with you wherever you go. Thank you so much, Dick. Tom Kendall, former coach of the University of Winnipeg women's basketball team, which won 88 games in a row from October 1992 to November 1994 and also won three CIS championships from 1993 to 1995. I remember them losing that 89th game to the Bisons. It was a huge upset. I think the Bisons just had a handful of victories at that point. Uh, and I'm sure that was at home as well at the Duckworth Center. But I had completely forgotten about their trip to Hawaii and that competition against Division One schools there and then coming home to win the national championship. It would have been really easy to get super disappointed after seeing your record disappear like that. But it just goes to uh, the character of so many of the of the women, the young women at that time. Uh, some people may remember Sandra Carroll, Pam Flick, Jody Rock, Andrea Hutchins, Diane Zunick, 
Heidi Powell, uh, Rowley, Sherry uh, Teckel, all sorts of uh, women that uh, participated and competed on behalf of the Westman and uh, 88 in a row and three consecutive national championships. Absolutely mind blowing when you uh, put it in perspective. And the reason why we were talking about this is because of what's happening at the University of Connecticut. The Huskies women's basketball team has won 109 games in a row and coach Gino Oriema has some strong words the other day at a news conference for today's youth saying it's getting harder to recruit because kids don't have the right attitude and he says if you don't have the right attitude and you have bad body language you simply won't play so we're wondering at 204-780-6868 if you have any important lessons that you've learned from playing sports or perhaps maybe your kids have surprised you with what they've learned from playing sports or maybe you've observed just from young people. I don't know. Maybe you coach. Maybe you're a coach, uh, coach a hockey team or a soccer team. What are you seeing from young people today? Is it very much a, a me, me, me sort of attitude that is out there? Or maybe that's maybe that's not. Maybe that's more of an American thing. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. You can call or you can text at two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. Your forecast is coming up next. I'm Brett, he is Greg, and a few weeks ago, we got an email from our boss, Brent, who says, hey, you guys are big in Norway. What? And we get this email. It's from a guy named Torger, spelled T-O-R-G-E-I-R. This was on February 6th. And he said that he was listening to Canadian radio, and he had listened to CJOB a bit from the web stream after he heard it on AM. He actually picked it up on AM, and he said he was currently listening to Mackling and McGarry. So thought that was pretty cool. Someone in Norway is listening to us. And then a few days ago, actually, no, this is a couple weeks ago now, March 14th, we get an email from Sweden. <laughs> Who knew? I look at my inbox, and I see this. The subject says, enjoyed CJOB AM 680 over in Sweden. This is from a guy named Per Eriksson, and I hope I'm pronouncing the first name correctly. It's yeah, just that's, a pre- that's, that's a pretty Swedish name, both the first and the last name. I think he got it bang on. So he says, Dear radio friend, my name is Per Eriksson, and I have, according to many of my friends, a strange hobby. I enjoy listening to short and medium wave radio stations from all over the world. All they hear from the loudspeakers is the noise. But to me, radio over the borders open new horizons. A lot of stations stream their programs on the internet, but that is not the same as catching the signal on air. That said, I am very pleased to inform you that I have enjoyed listening to CJOB on Sunday, November 6th, 2016. Your signal on AM680 was fair, but with some noise. Considering the distance between transmitter and my receiver, I am more than thrilled. And to prove reception and give you a better understanding of the reception quality over here in Sweden, I have recorded a short MP3 clip. And I want to play this for you with the disc, the, the precursor. This is going to sound funny. So I don't know if that... That is really neat. That is neat. That's the way a lot of radio stations used to sound uh, through my pillow and tuning in 
radio stations all over North America when I was a kid because I'd be up all to all hours of the night tuning in radio stations from Denver, from San Francisco, Chicago, Omaha, Nebraska, and you got to learn where they were on the dial. And that background noise, that hollow tinny sound, that was a hallmark of of what you were listening to because it was from so far away. <laughs> kind of neat to hear it again. And he says that he is using a microtelecom Perseus software-defined receiver no idea what that means, but it sounds cool. And he adds, must say I am proud of catching your signal with my 900-meter-long wire antenna. <laughs> this guy is serious about his That's hobby. nearly a kilometer. He says, yes, you need that length for transatlantic signals. I have put it five meters up in the trees so elks go free. So not only does he manage to have this neat hobby, but he's also very environmentally friendly in doing so. Pear, if you're listening today, uh, good afternoon, good evening. I guess it, uh, I'm going to do some quick math here, six. That's about eight o'clock, I'm guessing, in the evening over, over in Sweden. Oh, I'm just going to quit. Good for you for doing that on the spot. I think. I think. What time Stockholm. is it in Sweden? It is 7.56 p.m. boy, Greg. Thanks, buddy. Gold star for you. I know my time zones. <laughs> Sometimes. And after, speaking of time after 2 o'clock, we are going to switch gears and speak with the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Their Winnipeg Hot Topic series is tonight at 5.30 at the Fort Gary Hotel. The news is up next. It's 2.05 Thursday afternoon. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you. Straight through until 4 o'clock. And then it's Julie Buckingham and Richard Cloutier on the news. They'll get you home informed. They'll get you safe and sound. Traffic and weather together. Sports, news, business, entertainment. You doing an entertainment package for them today, Brett? Not today. Tomorrow? Tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow being Friday. Of course, uh, if it is your Friday, congratulations. On the end of your work week, we like to take some time every once in a while to thank all the people that work the odd hours of shift work so that we can uh, get our stuff done when we're not working. For Brett and I, that's one day a week, but we appreciate everyone that is uh, absolutely out there and uh, making our lives easier, easier, all the folks on the front line, services, etc. Aboriginal affairs, First Nations, Indigenous people, however you frame it, however you terminologize it... I think I just invented a word there. <laughs> I like it. First Nations uh, relations are critical between uh, us and the and the rest, or Indigenous, non-Indigenous, however you look at it. Uh, there's a divide, and we're working hard to to reduce that divide and build bridges. And one way we can do that is through economic development. That's my personal opinion. Uh, JP Gladue is president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And uh, he's in Winnipeg right, right now as part of the Hot Topic series, Aboriginal Power and Renewable Energy. That starts tonight at 5.30 at the Fort Gary Hotel. JP, would you agree with me that uh, one of the ways to break down the what divides us is economic development? Absolutely. I'm fully in agreement with that. I mean, if we look at, you know, Canada's history and you think about um, what powered our first economic engine, it was Indigenous people. It was us, the fur traders, the, the, the community members that were constantly working the trap line, hard work ethic, hard conditions. We knew trade. We knew the quality of good fur, what that project, what that product meant. It fueled the global economy. So we've always been entrepreneurs, but we've been on this forced hiatus for 
many, many, cent- well, a few centuries, a couple centuries now, and uh, due to a lot of the um, uh, policies and practices of the government, we've been basically pushed aside. But there's been this emergence of Indigenous business in this country, and we can go over some of the numbers in a bit. Um, but it is uh, eye-opening to see many of our communities across the country in every sector from coast to coast to coast uh, empowering their communities as, as equals in the Canadian economy. And it's incredibly encouraging, and we're going to see more of that growth happening, and it's good for all of Canada. So the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, before we get into tonight's event, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, absolutely. So we are nearly 34, about 34 years old, and we were founded by Murray Koffler. Uh, Murray Koffler, founder of Shoppers Drug Mart, uh, Paul Martin, Ed Brofman, and a few others uh, who came together um, 35 years ago and, and recognized that there is this, as you've mentioned, Gary, this big divide and, 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 and not going to sugarcoat it. There are, some, there are a lot of social challenges in our communities. And he saw as a successful business person, um, business, what it's made the impact in his life and, and, his, and in his environment. And he said, well, we got to do something to help Indigenous. And, and it's not, uh, it's not, hand out, it's like hand up. Like how do we embrace that? And, and again, what I was saying earlier about that in entrepreneurial spirit, how do we embrace that and encourage more of that? So he started the uh, Canadian Council back then for Native Business, and it's evolved into, we're a nonprofit organization, charitable status. We've got approximately 550 members uh, across the country. 70% are Indigenous, 30% are non. Uh, again, all sectors, uh, coast to coast to coast. Uh, we are driving uh, business development, uh, business relationships for the betterment of Canada, and we're doing that through a number of our programs and events like tonight. We've got some exceptional speakers to share their their stories and experiences. Uh, we are helping and we are changing day to day the perceptions of Indigenous people um, as as equals in society. And again, it's through that empowerment of, of the business. So I think within that, you've shared what the goal is Mm -hmm. in terms of the CCAB, but what are some of the challenges that non-Indigenous Canadians might not realize that are are challenges? Uh, uh, For for myself, you know, I'm a little bit of an entrepreneur and and I know that uh, in the past I've gone to friends and family to borrow money, start up (laughs) funds. I've begged, borrowed and stealed uh, from from friends and family and done whatever I've had to do Mm. and, and eventually managed to build a relationship with the financial institution that would back me in some of my things. Uh, what are some of the challenges I know that I've faced? What are some of the challenges that uh, Aboriginal people faced when they're trying to start a business? Are they different than mine? That's uh, a great question or a, a great lead in here. I, I fully appreciate that challenge. And I think we do some of the best research. Well, we do the best research in this country when it comes to Indigenous business. If you call INAC or StatsCan, they're going to say call CCAB. And our research around these challenges have pointed to access to capital. So just as you had challenges, our community is also uh, getting access to capital. And it's exacerbated by the fact that if you're on reserve, it's the Indian Act. And we don't own anything on the reserves. The federal government owns it. So how do we actually develop any kind of collateral to empower? So we're the same things, um, trying to access our, our money through our friends, family, and wherever we can scrape it up. Uh, the other thing is getting access to good business tools and, and planning uh, tools uh, that are going to be the foundation for the advanced startup and advancement of our growth, and then human capital. And I think what separates, and I get asked the question often, well, what separates an Indigenous entrepreneur from, uh, from any other entrepreneur? And cash is king. You know, you got to be able to manage your cash flow. Uh, but really, it's a strong connection to community. Uh, indigenous communities, you know, we've got that strong sense and that's our home. Uh, and there's when you look at empowering an indigenous business, um, 
quite often you look at their workforce and they're, they are employing, uh, we're employing our own people. Uh, and that's really important because one of the other challenges is that there is still systemic uh, racism when it comes to our people and, and preconceived conceptions about who we are as business people. The number I'm about to throw out to you now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, and you're, to, to get a really good reaction out of you, but our Aboriginal economy hit $30 billion la- last year. Um, and about $12 billion of that is coming from our Indigenous businesses. Sounds pretty amazing, and it is. But when you compare that to the $2 trillion economy, uh, that's still only about a percentage and a half. So we've grown substantially, and we're going to continue to grow. And it's that kind of perception that Canadians don't get to see as often as we would like. And when you start to understand uh, how complex that our economies are starting to become, how much depth we're starting to generate, um, and the research that we've done, it act- we, can, we can actually prove out the case that Partnering with Indigenous businesses, getting us in your supply chains, actually makes really good business sense. J.P. Gladue is the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. He joins us in studio. So you mentioned that there is a systemic racism that mm-hmm. continues. Is it is it getting better? I think it's slowly getting better. You know, there's so much attention now on our issues, which is really great. You know, we have the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission and the calls to action. Uh, We've got a very uh, progressive uh, federal government who has made Indigenous issues um, uh, top of their their relationship list, if you will. Um, And, you know, business is starting to understand in order to create certainty – um, building relationships become really important. So the ignorance is starting to subside. There's still quite a bit of it. Um, but ignorance we can develop through relationships and knowledge sharing. Uh, and I think the indifference is hopefully starting to subside as well. I think generally things are getting better, but we still definitely have a, a long way to go. JP, I, I hope you don't mind if I ask you a couple of tough questions no, here. Do. Because we had a conversation off air. You know my experience in the past of working with One First Nation in particular was an outstanding project, uh, not because I was involved with it, but because <laughs> they came to uh, the company I was with and we found them a solution. And it's a solution that's self-sustaining, one that's created economic benefits for the entire First Nation in Alberta, we helped them build their own internet service provider and telephone company, something that I I think one of the things that I'm most proud of that I've ever done in my lifetime. But in that experience and in helping uh, of First Nation in Alberta do this, I realized that, A, there was a challenge in terms of the First Nation to be able to spend their own money because at certain thresholds they had to go and get permission from the federal government to spend what was their own capital. There was a challenge in borrowing or financing different pieces of of equipment because being a First Nation, it is a different sort of territory. You're uh, governed by the Indian Act. Correct. So you are uh, – Canadian law doesn't necessarily apply and Mm -hmm. so there are caveats that need to be negotiated and implemented in leasing arrangements and financing arrangements. And there have been negative experiences from businesses who have engaged in business with First Nations and and either haven't been paid or – you know, you hear these stories, right, when you try and engage with individuals and with business that – you know, that might buy into a project and they go, well, these three things and others are preventing us from getting involved. Yeah, no, those those are all valid points. And, and, and the experience across the country, and one of the things we need to understand, not every community is, is in the same economic situation or has the same business savvy uh, or the same opportunities in a region. So building relationships is, is key to all of this, first of all. 
Uh, but when you when you start to address, I mean, one of the things that we've got to do in this country is empower communities throughout the reserve system. Um, one of the ways that we're doing this is the First Nation Land Management Act, where we get communities to sign on. Uh, this is through the federal government. It takes out about a third of the Indian regulations um, out of the out of the act and puts it into the care and control of the community. So the community uh, then develops its own land code. You can actually add value to your community by uh, by leasing parts of your land for economic development. That is really important. So if you're going to come and invest in my community, you want to make sure that you're going to be able to, if the if business goes sideways, and it doesn't matter what your color is, business goes sideways sometimes. That's right. And if it's going to go sideways, you want to make sure that you can- uh, I need collateral. You need your collateral, and you need to get your assets off if you need to. And so we've got to start thinking about those things. Doing business with Indigenous businesses, uh, or uh, sorry, First Nations, um, for instance, you want to do business with the business arm of the community. I think uh, this is the best practice. Like we wouldn't necessarily rely on the provincial or federal government for business decisions. Uh, governments, their their job is to govern and to create space for the economy and and policies and practices so that growth of an indigenous business can can happen. It's the same thing with our First Nation governments. So we're starting to see a strong trend, and we so do. So you need actual entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in well, the you need first the business nation, minds, yeah, absolutely. Right? Versus just dealing with, with the chief the and government, council, chief with and the chief council. council, and right. chief and council have enough on their plate. Uh, they need to, you know, they they've got a lot on their plate. My dad was a chief for twelve years, uh, and you know, I watched, I watched as, as he developed the community, and I worked for the community for a few years. And what we did was we created an economic development corporation. It was arm's length from chief and council. We did have a council member that sat on because you have to have that tie. But these these are vehicles for expressing community interest in their business aspirations or vehicles to build relationships or vehicles to maintain um, that uh, corporate memory. Because the other thing in the Indian Act, if, if you're switching out your council every two years, it takes you, you know, anybody in the community knows it. You're six months to, you're you're getting ready to gear up for election and then six months uh, you're, you're, you know, you're getting your feet wet. And so it gives you about a year. What can you do in a year? Um, so these ECDEVs are the vehicles to help formulate that business relationship and maintain that kind of corporate knowledge and that and, and develop that business acumen that is going to drive better and longer sustainable success for Indigenous businesses and their partners that come to the table with them. J.P. Gladue is president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, Winnipeg Hot Topic Series, Aboriginal Power and Renewable Energy, happening tonight starting at 5.30 at Fort Garry Hotel. We'll talk a little bit more about that event in a few moments. But Jeff Fortier, we have to do something right now. 680 CJOB's Fly Away to You 2 Your time to win is now. Norma Pauls. You have five minutes to call 204-780-6868. Norma Paul's five minutes to call 204-780-6868. Why is that, Greg? Well, because Norma probably wants to go to Vancouver to see U2, CJOB Flyway to U2, the biggest concert tour of 2017. We're going to send someone there. Enter your name now at cjob.com, and then you will be entered to have your name announced at either 710, 1110, 210, 510. And then you'll have five minutes to call 780-6868. And then of those people who managed to get in in time, Shadow Davis will announce a winner on March 31st, Friday, March 31st. And you will be going to Vancouver May, uh, May 12th for the concert, the very first show on their world tour. And uh, we'll fly you there, we'll fly you back, and we'll give you two nights accommodation and two tickets to see uh, what is still one of the greatest rock and roll bands in the world. 
219, your forecast up next. Congratulations to Norma Pauls, who called within the five minutes to qualify for the CJOB flyaway to U2 in Vancouver. Grand prize draw happening Friday, March 31st on the Shadow Davis Show. Way to go, Norma. We have in studio with us J.P. Gladue, who is president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Winnipeg Hot Topic Series tonight at the Fort Garry Hotel, starting at 5.30 on Aboriginal Power and Renewable Energy. And we'll get to, we'll ask you about that in a moment, but we got a text here that I want to read to you. It's from Reese, who quoted my question, which was, is systemic racism getting any better? To which he perceived your response to be a pause followed by a, a sigh. And he says, that said it all for me. Being a last generation First Nations person, I felt his response in my heart. I look too white for some Indians, says Reese, and white people are critical of my treaty rights. You don't look Indian, they say. What is your response to that? I, I, I feel, um, you know, both my grandmothers uh, were taken away to residential school. Actually, one was taken here to St. Boniface um, from northern Ontario. That's a long way to be taken from your family. Uh, my grandfathers are, one is French and one is Scottish. I, I'm First Nation, um, and... I stay connected to my, in, in the work that I've done for 25 years, I've, you know, my first job out of college, I wanted to be a game warden, but my first job out of college was working for First Nations and Forestry in the communities, and I fell in love with my community, and that's how I identify. And it's a personal struggle, it's a personal, it's, everybody takes it differently. Um, being an Indigenous person, absolutely, I mean, I, you may, a lot of people look at me, and I got green eyes, and I grow facial hair, I've got dark skin, but, uh, you know, sometimes I don't look Native enough to some people, and, and, and vice versa, and it's a personal experience, and it's a tough conversation in this country, because our own people have to, we're talking about reconciliation in this country, and I think sometimes our people are having a challenge reconciling with each other, and, you know, when I traveled in Australia, and I, just this past October, working with the Aboriginal people there, and I was, um, I was sitting down with an Australian uh, elder, and, and then he looks over, and, he, and, he, and they call each other black. He says, look at this beautiful black man coming to me, referencing his aboriginalness. And I looked over, and I went, you know, inside I went, doesn't look aboriginal at all. But they embrace that, that heritage. Um, the, 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 uh, the dark gene in, in the Australian aboriginal people is recessive, so, but, but they embrace each other. And I think we need more of that uh, in our in our country with our own people to embrace more because we we need we need to be more accepting. Uh, I think it's funny. I had a conversation just the other day about the the six Sicatel experience, and somebody asked me, "Well, why don't more First Nations share with one another? Why isn't there more partnership amongst First Nations?" Like, well, they're. they're different nations there's there's historical differences there that that genuinely need to be forgotten and reconciled fair to say mm-hmm. yeah I, I think so I mean and it, it, it again it varies across the country we've got uh, some of the First Nation groups across the country that work really well together in in joint partnerships around uh, resource projects, for instance. And, you know, we look in, um, you're talking Alberta, Northeastern Alberta Aboriginal Business Association, um, NABA. Um, these indigenous entrepreneurs, they get together all the time. They share success. They're, they're talking all the time about how they're going to grow their association, how they're going to grow their business together in their communities, uh, how they're going to employ each other. Um, you know, there's this this hurdle that we need to get over in some some parts of the country, an economic hurdle. Once we start to feel empowered and we are no longer hand to mouth, but we're actually managing wealth. When you get to that place, you make different decisions. 
And those decisions are about sharing. And, and, and this is where our culture used to be so strong. We shared all the time, shared knowledge, shared resources, shared land. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's no knock against any community. It's the circumstance that we've been in for a couple hundred years due to colonialism. Um, and and, and it's got, we got to repair that. And then again, back to your earlier comments, like we can't do that without an economy. If we don't have an economy, and that's why our organization is so important in this country, I believe, um, to help rebuild that economy so that we can be stronger players and make stronger decisions from a place of strength uh, and wealth sharing rather than the, some circumstances that we find ourselves in now. J.P. Gladue is president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Winnipeg Hot Topic Series tonight, Aboriginal Power and Renewable Energy. It starts at 5.30 at the Fort Garry Hotel. You can get more information on that at ccab.com. J.P., we're out of time, but uh, you're welcome back here anytime. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. The Global News coming up next at 2.30. It's not very often that you get the parent of one of the members of the national volleyball champions, <laughs> the collegiate Trinity Western, winning in Edmonton this past weekend. Yep, Congratulations, Carolyn. They won U Sports Nationals. Thank you. It was I was there. It was so exciting. Um, Twenty two hundred fans, um, and we were playing the home team in the home gym. Um, so thousands of people screaming against them, and there was a few hearty souls of us that were holding signs and cheering madly for them. And it was it's it's fun watching your child be able to use the talents that he's been given and all the work he's put in with his friends out there just um, working hard as a team and then watching and then watching them be successful as a bonus but sure. just watching them go hard is really the thing that a parent loves we were talking about sport in our first hour today okay. and this idea uh, from the University of uh, Connecticut basketball coach the women's team who've won 109 games in a row and okay. and he feels as though a lot of young people are acting the part of a good athlete as opposed to exhibiting uh, good sportsmanship, uh, quality teammate uh, attributes. And and he also talks about body language and how, you know, when you're on the bench and you're not playing, you, you got still got to be in the game. And there's that, that age old adage about sport doesn't develop character. It reveals it. So we were talking to people and, and sharing some of our stories about what have you learned about your son in terms of how you raised him and his appreciation for you and vice versa right. uh, through sport and through his journey uh, to a national championship in volleyball. Well, it's really fun being out there. The, the pressure's on, right? You've got thousands of people watching and they're cheering against you. And I saw him sort of stand up to that level of pressure. Um, his job, he's the libero. And so he's in the back row and he's kind of the quarterback, right? So he's um, helping people know where to go for the defense. He's kind of reading it. That's his job. And so he's really kind of the calm, cool presence. And so as much as his physical abilities are required, he's got quick reflexes and all. It's his character in terms of stabilizing the team that's really required. And I think he did a really good job of that. At least his coach told me he did. And from what I could tell from the stands, he did. And so you're right. And I I do think it's a bit of chicken and egg, right? Where it reveals you, but it also grows you. And uh, I know that after um, the whole thing was over we were all parents and athletes collected in a room and one of the staff people from the school gave a little speech and congratulated the coach on his hard work and congratulated the parents um, and thanked the parents for how they have poured their lives into the kids driving to practices and then uh, thanked the guys that were on the bench that made these guys a better players and that took the role that they needed to and were supportive and encouraging and you only get better by playing hard competition and practice right and so those those guys that weren't on the court were just as important and then the speech stopped 
And he never did get around to thanking the and congratulating the players that were on the court because I think that's self-evident, right? That wasn't the focus at this meeting. The focus was on on really congratulating and, and thanking and pr- appreciating the people who, behind the scenes. And uh, that's sort of the ethos of that team. And uh, I love that he sort of gets to absorb some of that, to recognize that it's the work behind the scenes often that sets up for success. And you only see the visible success, and those are often the people that are noticed. But those people wouldn't be successful if you didn't notice all the people behind, right? And so uh, we need to acknowledge that. Well, I want to read you a text on sports, and I know we we brought you in for something else, yeah. but I just need to quickly, in case you were like me and you raised an eyebrow when she said uh, Lavero, Libero, I had to, go, I did some quick googling. Okay, like, what did she? I had tried to figure out how to spell it. I landed on Libero, 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 or Libero, depending on what country you're from. That's it's right. a player specialized in defensive skills. The Libero must wear a contrasting jersey color from his or her teammates and cannot block. Or attack the ball when it is entirely above net height. When the ball is not in play, the libero can replace any back row player without prior notice to the officials. I always wondered what the other jersey thing was for volleyball, so you learn something new every day. So thank you, Carolyn. You're welcome. Yeah, he's the defensive specialist. I love knowing he's a different color because when I watch on the monitor, like when he's in another province and I'm watching on oh, computer sure. Fridays, I can always tell which one he is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like how, that'd be a good reason to have a, a soccer, a kid that's a, a goalie in soccer. But uh, so, so cute you know, story. The, he's much shorter than all the other players, right? The other players are six, seven, six, eight, and he's merely six feet, right? So when you see them with the rest of his team he looks pretty tiny and so there was one game last year where they were going into the game and the security guard stopped him and said you can't come in it's only players that are allowed here <laughs> wow and he goes i am a player and the, he, the guy looked at him and didn't believe him and his, his teammates wouldn't back him up they just watched him <laughs> score <laughs> hug him out to dry yeah. nice <laughs> that's good team building right there that's For what sure. that is uh, the text that we got here, uh, this came in at uh, one fifty-five. so just after we had our conversation last hour, and it's from Mike, who says, I played football for five years as a kid, and I was a bully on the field. I would talk trash nonstop, stopping only when a ref asked me to. I was hated. However, off the field, I did none of these things. Kids need to understand that the sports personalities they see on TV usually are much different off the playing field. Ray Rice is a perfect example. Calm player on the field, but became the most hated man in football because of his off-field actions. First, I Ray Rice, you, is this a correct assessment of Ray Rice? Well, Ray Rice, of course, uh, who was ultimately kicked out of football uh, for, for hitting his then-fiancée in that video in the elevator, uh, was suspended for four games that turned into a season that turned into the end of his career, uh, was really kind of very well liked throughout the National Football League and by his teammates, very calm demeanor. Uh, but uh, I would agree with Mike, uh, exhibited obviously some very horrible actions off it. So I guess maybe the question for you, Carolyn, is um, should... Should we should we act the way in sport, do you think, as we act in life? Or should we try to bring what we learn from sport into life, I guess? Well, I I always thought that my kids went in the arts or sports or sort of the activities of their childhood. It was to prepare them to become an adult. Um, and so I very much thought of sports as something that was character development. Uh, and so um, we focused on coaches and teams that built character. 
Um, and I'm a firm believer in in helping having a person be a whole person that I like to th- what you hear me on, you know, when I'm on air is the same person when I'm off air, who I'm with a client is the same who when I'm with a family member. I like to be all one person all the time uh, and uh, have an integrity about that. Um, and one of the things that my son and his team, what they say is we want to respect the other team highly. And part of respecting the other team is giving them everything we've got hard because we expect them to respect us and to go at us hard too, that we each play each other as hard as we can. But then within that is if we're not going to play, if we aren't dirty people, we're not going to play dirty either. We're going to win fair and square by going really hard. And I love that he's a part of a team that has that that ethos and that kind of res- demands that sort of respect because I think when you spend that many hours playing a sport, it does become a part of you. Mm-hmm. And I would want there to be um, a positive bleed that goes between personal life and sport life. Well, you hear the the saying, you know, I'm going to put my game face on. And so for a lot of people, mm-hmm. there is a divide. For yep. a lot of athletes, the way they are on the ice or on the field is completely different than who they are off of it. There are some, some of the most popular hockey players in particular okay. in Winnipeg, uh, not particularly nice people off the ice. And I'm going back a, a decade or two here. Nobody in this particular uh, crop, uh, I'm not commenting on them. And vice versa, some of the nicest people uh, that you ever want to meet off the ice. Boy, you wouldn't want to meet them in a corner during a hockey game and some of the things they'd be capable of doing to you and saying to you in the in the field of, of competition, uh, they did they contrasted greatly. So uh, that that's uh, that's an interesting topic for discussion. There is both, but I I think there's you know um, when my son played at University of Manitoba against Manitoba in the finals, it was the second game where they played five games, and by the end of it, he's hurting and he's sore, and they're tired and they have to dig deep to play hard to do what they can to pull out the win. And I think there's something about that that builds character and that has you know that when the going gets rough and the odds are against you and you're losing and you're tired, that you can find a place, a resource that you didn't know existed inside of you and you can use that and you have that experience from sport and you can carry that into success in life. And so I think there's so many parallels and lessons and and ways in which um, – I know that, you know, amateur athletes um, can learn and professional athletes, that may be another whole ball of wax. That's not my expertise, but I really think that as you go at sport, you can learn a lot about yourself and you can also develop yourself in ways that help you be a better person outside of sport. Without question. Now, Brett, you mentioned we brought Carolyn in today. We wanted to talk about something else. Oh, yeah, now we're talking. (laughs) Something that a lot of us are afraid to admit out loud, and that might be the fact that we've been victim of a scam, that we've been scammed. We'll talk about how that fear plays into scams working, in fact, because it plays on the whole idea of, oh, well, they're never going to tell anybody because they're going to be too embarrassed for Mm. falling for this. We'll get into that conversation with Carolyn Claussen, therapist with Conexus Counseling, the website, conexuscounseling.ca, after your forecast, which is up next. Polo Park Hearing Center, your locally owned family-run hearing specialist in the lower level at Polo Park. I just wanted to prove to you all that I could do it. Good for you, Greg. Thank you. You did well. <laughs> hey, got to small uh, celebrate the small things. Uh, Carolyn Clausen is with us as she is most Thursdays at two thirty. She is a therapist with Connexus Counseling. The website connexuscounseling.ca, and we want to talk about getting scammed because getting scammed 
sucks. And Carolyn, you just about uh, went down a rabbit hole with <laughs> with someone who thought you might be your your company might be a suitable victim. Let's see how we can uh, get some money for free out of you. What we, happened? We had people who tried, and the funny thing is, it doesn't happen for a while, and then it happened twice on the same day. And man, that sucked. So the first one was it had been building up for probably about three weeks where we had somebody who was from another country say, I, you know, me and my wife were on, we're coming for an extended vacation to Winnipeg. We would like, um, you know, intensive therapy over six, six weeks. It's going to be a bunch of sessions. And can we set this time and we'll send you the payment in advance? We said, sure, that's no problem, but we can't confirm the appointments until you've got payment in hand. So we suggested Interact. We suggested PayPal. We suggested that he call us e-transfer, like none of those options seemed to work for him. He had to write a check. So he said, well, we suggest a certified check because then you know the funds are good um, so that we can confirm those appointments. And he said, it's in the mail. And so several days later, we get this check and it's not certified. And it is for about four times as much as what was required to cover the cost of those sessions for thousands of dollars more. And, uh, you know, my client care manager, Melanie and I, we looked at each other and we're like, Oh, this is what it is, right? So I Googled it, and sure enough, there's something called the overpayment scam, and you can Google it and find the results and the dangers of it, right, where they expect us to deposit. And and we said, you know, I, I instructed um, Melanie, my client care manager, to send him an email to say, sorry, this isn't going to work for us. Um, the payment's not going to work. And he said, well, it was probably too much, but you could just write us a check back, no problem, and we'll come and just use the amount. And we're like... That would be the classic overpayment scam, right? That we are going to write you a check for several grand and then we'll find out after that that your check isn't going to clear and we'll be out the money, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you have to deal with somebody. We, we get people that come to us saying, you know, my friend needs help and we kind of wonder, is it your friend or you, right? So you kind of take people with a grain of salt. You figure out what they have to do in order to come there and you, you want to treat people with respect knowing that this isn't easy, but then... You, you you give people the benefit of the doubt and then they take advantage of you for it, right? And and that, that stung. Uh, and then the second one was on that very same day, I had a woman talk to me where after um, several times of helping her with her research and doing some correction with some of the results that she was getting from me, and I, I worked really hard to help her on this project. It was on bullying in Canada. And uh, I help people out with research that we all need to pay it forward and pay it back and contribute to the greater good and add to the body of knowledge. So I help people with research occasionally when when I'm asked. And at the end of this time, when she asked me for her research, she said, so I'm going to be doing some media and I can put your name on it if you want to pay me for it. And asking people to help you with research and asking for payment for their contribution, that's not ethics. That's not ethical, right? That you just don't mix payment and being a research subject is just completely inappropriate and it biases the research and it's not pure research and you can't use the results reliably. And really what she was doing was this research with air quotes um, in order to get business for her company, which I found out was a human resources development business management company um, in BC. And she was using this as a front to get, you know, business contracts for her company. And when I confronted her on it, she said, clearly it was a mistake to have requested this from you, which was really different than, yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm (laughs) 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 because, oh, uh, shame on you for figuring it out, basically. Yes. I should be checking with other people whether they would like to have, you know, media contracts with me. My goodness. And so what was interesting, though, was it just it creates a suspicion in you when twice in one day somebody's trying to take advantage of you. Suddenly you find a shadow behind every bush. Right. And what I found myself was just being suspicious of everything that day. 
Great term, by the way. I like that, shadow behind every bush. You were able to deflect these scams, and good for you. But if for somebody who is, who does get successfully scammed, whatever the scam may be, what kind of effect can that have on that person's mental well-being? Well, I think the the big thing is is that there's the it's a sense of a couple things. One is a sense of betrayal, right? Like I got taken. I started to trust somebody. Often, like this fellow that was from another country, we exchanged probably a dozen emails with them over three or four weeks. You kind of develop a bit of a relationship with them, right? He's probably sh- sharing little tidbits about his family sure. and trying to trying to give you some insight into who he is to make that connection genuine, right? Right. And, you know, you know, we're in the business of reading people. And so we were kind of a little sketchy about some of it, right? Not sure. But other people, that's not their business is to sort of read people and find out what's really going on. And so when you develop, somebody takes the time to develop a relationship of trust and you give them and you invest in that relationship and then they take advantage of you, it, it feels deeply betraying. And then it also feels either embarrassing, like he took advantage of me, or much worse of shaming of, what's wrong with me that I let this guy take advantage of me, right? Like somehow I am flawed and I am less than because I allowed someone to take advantage of me. And often there's a financial cost to it. And the the impulse is to want to hide and to not tell anybody, um, and, which then sets you up to either be taken further advantage of or to not educate so that others can then be taken advantage of. Right, because you got you got taken to a certain point right. before the money got involved. You did. He did scam you. Right. He created this relationship and which was completely fictitious. Right. In order to get something that he wanted. But some people do take that last step and then the money gets involved. And then, as you say, their people are reluctant to share their experience because they feel obviously in retrospect, you go, oh, yeah, I should have realized at the time. But, the, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. so obvious But after, that's what the yeah. scammers count on, right, is that they'll be able to perpetuate the scam because people be too embarrassed to come forward. Right. And I would have to say that it, it very much I did. We did not get financially scammed because I could Google this and I understood the term for it and I could read about how it works. And I was not scammed because other people have been brave and bold enough to put out there that this is what happens and this is how people can take advantage of you. And because I've heard it somewhere on the news or something, it didn't happen to me that it cost me financially. The the emotional scam was the relationship part of it. Time, though. Time. Time. Yes, time. And emotional currency as well. And that matters too, right? You can't get the time back. Yeah. The whole world seemed a little less safe to you. You mentioned the paranoia. Is that, can that be, become a, a, like something that's really serious for some people who maybe, maybe do get taken? Well, and I think part of what happens is that when you get, when you, when we got scammed, when I got betrayed by these people, it wasn't my first rodeo, right? This wasn't the first time that I'd been betrayed. And what happened was really interesting was it touched the old wounds in me where I have been betrayed in a much bigger way at different, at a different time in my life. And then the runaway train, it just gathered momentum and went down the hill fast and suddenly those shadows behind the bushes didn't seem even seem like shadows. It felt like they were real. And I, it's funny because, you know, being in the business I do, counseling people, I know how it can get away in you. And so there's this little part of my brain that goes, Carolyn, when you're thinking that your husband isn't being honest with you and he's betraying you and he's letting you down, it's very possible that you're not thinking rationally. Probably today is not the day to talk with him about it. You should probably sleep on it <laughs> and figure out, give yourself some time to handle this a little bit more in a balanced way. Because often when we're in the heat of the moment and we're, that runaway train is going, 
we can speak in a panicked way that doesn't have anything to do with the present situation because the memory of betrayal, past betrayals, isn't acting as a memory. It's acting as if it's really happening again right now. Now, I know we're out of time, but we did spend some time at the beginning talking about uh, sport exploits. Mm -hmm. And Brett and I wanted to talk about that really common scam from online dating that's going on that people long distance relationships. And then, you know, if you pay for my plane ticket, I'll come or whatever. Can we talk about that next week? Because I wanted to talk to you about it this week, but we, you know, we got set off a divergent path for next week. (laughs) Sounds great. Okay. Okay. Carolyn Clausen is a therapist with Conexus counseling, the website, conexuscounseling.ca. And you can read this full blog post. It's just simply called scammed. And there's a whole bunch more there that we didn't get to. You can find it there at conexuscounseling.ca. We have stuff to give away. Do it, do it, do it. I like that chant. Double pass for the advanced screening on March 29th at Silver City Polo Park for The Zookeeper's Wife, which is based on a true story, first presented in a book in 2007. Jessica Chastain plays the zookeeper's wife in World War II in Poland, and when things get bad, she uses her zoo in Warsaw to hide Jews from the Nazis. What have you been up to? In your little zoo. So we've been doing crappy 80s TV trivia, random movies made in Winnipeg trivia, crappy 80s movie trivia, and I thought we would do some more of that right now. So here's the question. What was that movie from the (laughs) mid to late 80s uh, about BMX bikes? I think the poster was yellow, and Adrian from Rocky was in it. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. Again, there's a movie in the mid-80s about BMX bikes. I think the poster was yellow. Adrian was in it. 204-780-6868. And we're giving away two double movie passes. Two double movie passes. You figured two people are going to get the answer to that crazy question? I guarantee it. Oh, my gosh. You need to call Mm 204-780-6868. For your chance to win the passes for the zookeeper's wife. Well, now I've, that I've made the guarantee, it's probably not going to happen. I thought my question yesterday was obscure. <laughs> oh, this, Holy moly. That's an easy Google. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. oh, oh, way to give that away. Ah, that's always my first instinct. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're going to uh, press pause on this part of the program right now, as I can hear our guest, Hassan Youssef, he's president of the Canadian Labour Congress. He's causing a ruckus out in the <laughs> green room. So we're going to bring him in here. We're going to talk about yesterday's federal budget as we continue on Mackling and McGarry. Greg Mackling and Brett McGarry with you, along with Hassan Youssef. He is the president of the Canadian Labour Congress, joining us in studio this afternoon. We're here to talk about the federal budget, which came down yesterday. And Mr. Youssef, great to uh, see you. We've spoken on the phone several times over the years. Great to finally meet you face-to-face here in Manitoba. Certain level, what people might call austerity measures being taken by the provincial government as uh, we tackle our billion dollar or $850 million deficit next door in Saskatchewan. Their budget went down yesterday. That will include some job losses, job cuts, including the selling of a, of a crown corporation, the Saskatchewan uh, Transportation Company, their bus line in Saskatchewan. Any such underlying or hidden news within the federal budget? Any job losses anticipated there? No, uh, clearly uh, there is a fundamental difference to the federal approach uh, versus what's happening here in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. 
Yeah, they're obviously uh, made the decision they're going to run deficits to ensure they can get the economy back on its feet rather than continue to slash and burn and maintain the austerity. Um, uh, I think pr- pr- position that some uh, governments are following. And I think yesterday's budget uh, highlights for me in terms that I saw positive, the continuation, of course, the um, infrastructure uh, spending to continue to help rebuild our intercities, both large and small across the country. Uh, continue to put money into transit because it remains a big, big challenge for working people getting to work on a regular basis. And, and of course, uh, keep investing in that, which is going to a long-term dividends. And, of course, new investment is going to come to the municipalities who have been really struggling with social housing. They plan to put, of course, $11 billion into social housing going forward. It'll help rebuild some of the social housing stock across the country, but at the same time, it's also going to help uh, build a new social housing that will help, again, a lot of families that are struggling, of course, with uh, with shelter and, and not having the ability to do so. They also made a commitment around uh, child care going forward. We would have preferred them to do more upfront funding starting uh, in this budget, but um, it'll be $500 million starting, and then, of course, it'll ramp up by 2019. Again, that's going to help a lot of municipalities and, and of provinces who have been struggling on their own to try and figure out how to help working families meet some child care needs. And, of course, um, the reality, they, they had promised, of course, some uh, tax reform. None of that is in the budget. There's just some minor changes in the budget around tax reform, trying to bring Uber onto the same platform as other taxi company running a business. They have to pay GSD um, for the federal government. And the rest of it, I think, is uh, they're going to wait and see, in my view, is that they're looking to see what's going to happen to the U.S. before they really start dealing with some of the tax, tax measures they promised to do, and uh, certainly not in this budget. Hassan Youssef is president of the Canadian Labour Congress. And Mr. Youssef, you mentioned transit. And I wanted to wonder if you could expand a little bit about what happened yesterday with public transit, uh, the Liberals eliminating the tax credit for commuters who buy a transit pass. That change takes effect July 1st. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, listen, if, you, if anybody can get a tax credit uh, back on their income tax is a positive thing. But the reality is, I think, in terms of the research that's been done, there's not been a huge uptake of more people using public transit because they do get, of course, a refund on their, their, their income tax when, 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 at the end of the year. I think a better uh, way to help, I think, public transit is to invest more so we can at least make the stuff more efficient. The more people that are using public transit, the cheaper it will cost. And, of course, um, you know, some people will be very upset, and I understand uh, individuals may take some personal issue, but... Again, there's been no clear correlation between giving people a, a tax credit and increasing a ridership on, on public transit. And I understand, you know, if you're getting it, you don't want to lose it. But I think given the amount of the money they're putting into public transit, I think is going to be uh, incredibly important for the whole country, not just in a particular city, uh, in, in increasing ridership. I think some people can look past investing and spending money. A lot of people see this investment in childcare as an expenditure versus an investment, but we are in a clear situation here where we need more labor. And one of those obstacles to being part of the labor market is childcare. Lots of people have to uh, change dramatically their careers and, and the jobs that they do based on finding care for their kids. I see it as an investment versus an expenditure. But when you see these deficits at 29, 24, $20 billion, really no plan to get out of deficit. Somebody along the line is going to pay for these, even if we agree they're all investments. Do you think that that's a, that's a, a sustainable way to, to run our economy, even though what we might be doing now 
uh, is is what some might call a short-term gain, but there's going to be long-term pain as well. How do, how do you reconcile that? Well, you know, if the economy is performing to the level we would expect, where more people are employed and, of course, uh, business, of course, are funneling back uh, some investment in terms of buying uh, new equipment and, of course, modernizing, uh, it's a better thing for the country at the end of the day. But when the economy is sluggish and uh, laying off people and uh, uh, creating a lot of retrenchment, uh, that, that just creates more problem because you're not growing the revenue stream. And I think this government recognized they can't, I, I don't believe they can have a long-term plan just to keep running deficit. They're hoping the economy will return to the level that it used to perform since the collapse, of course, of commodity pricing. And if that happened, of course, um, we were able to, we don't have to keep pumping in more money into the economy to do uh, some of the social spending they're doing right now. I think it's a prudent approach given the, the low debt ratio we have in the country. We've got one of the lowest debt ratio in the G7 countries. Uh, we have done very good when we were in good times paying off a lot of part of the debt. And I think Canadians recognize to a large extent in polling I've been looking at that this wise investment, these are things we're going to have to fix. Fix it now. We fix it later. We're going to have to fix it. Uh, it also, by the way, will help the country compete uh, much more effectively uh, with, with other countries around the world. If we can move our people more efficiently to their jobs and their homes, and also if we can move our products uh, out of the country to markets and get, getting access to get our products to other countries, we want to sell, that, sell our products to the end of the day. Also in the budget yesterday, the pledge of about $5.2 billion for, for skills development. So that, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's wise investment. One of the challenges employers have been making, and we have been making the labor movement, we've got a mismatch, but a lot of people have skills, of course. Their jobs are changing rapidly. And what we haven't been able to do is pr- provide enough training for people to continue to modernize their skills to meet the challenges that's coming with the, the changes in the workplace. It's not yet clear in the budget how they're going to figure this out. The biggest problem the federal government has got, it doesn't get the proper advice it requires because they've got rid of all the agencies they used to provide that advice where employers and unions and colleges used to sit together and said, here's what we know that's wrong with the, the training that we're doing and here's how we need to ch- change the direction. Now, they do they provide in the budget an opportunity to create, create a new kind of an agency that will give them uh, more better advice, and I'm hoping that would lead to. But the investment is a wise investment that will help tremendously to modernize people's skills and their ability to get into the employment and stay employed as their their workplace continue to change. Will you forgive me for asking an oversimplified question? Would you give it a letter grade on behalf of the Canadian Labour Congress? <laughs> yeah, listen, uh, unless uh, I was winning the lottery, I'm always going to give it a letter grade. I mean, it's fundamental for us to, to always be hopeful that you can do better. And I think um, uh, this budget certainly uh, did address some things that we think are important for the future of the country, but equally so, we know they could have done better. We would have liked to see them starting the road in the tax reform that they wanted to do to make it more tax fairness for across the country. They didn't tackle that. There's some obviously some underlying challenges with the economy as to how we're going to modernize with the changes that is coming. And uh, we had asked for some changes to unemployment insurance rules. Some of it did happen. Most of it did not happen in this budget. We had asked for some changes in the temporary foreign worker program. They had announced some previously. They announced a little bit more in this budget, but not to the extent we would want to see. But at the end of the day, they were figuring we don't want to offend anybody, but at the same time, we don't have a lot of new money. We got, we're going to run a deficit, and we don't want to overburden the country, not knowing what is likely to happen in the United States with their tax uh, uh, and spending uh, when, when they, uh, Trump should send his budget to Congress. It might be some, something they have to contend with, and then they're, wait, they're going to wait and see. 
So in the fall update, we may see more things coming from the federal government, but then they will know for certain where they're going. Sounds like a rock-solid C. Well, I would say it's somewhere in the B. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Hassan you. Youssef, President of the Canadian Labour Congress, thank you so much for joining us today on 680-CJOB. 3.38, Thursday afternoon, for those of you anticipating all the drama in Congress tonight in the United States, the vote on the health care bill has been postponed for until tomorrow morning. So, so much for that must-see TV tonight. I guess I'll have to watch the Jets game at 9.30 instead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to watch a sci-fi show called Colony. Oh, really? On Bravo. Is that a good one? I love it. It's Is name. that the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon produced no. one or directed? No. No, I can't. What was that? That was called Incorporated. I never yes. did watch that. You never did? No. Um. Oh, no. Colony, is it's about an alien invasion, but it's not so much about the invasion as people dealing with the new world order. It's, uh, it stars Sawyer from Lost. I don't know if you ever watched Lost. Anyway, Dude, we have some uh, common interests, but we have also some divergent interests. Uh, Lost would be one of those. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, uh, Trivia. Yeah. You know what? Uh, The way you described that TV show and the way I described that TV show, it reminded me of the trivia question (laughs) that you handed out at the top of the hour. (laughs) What was that movie from the mid to late 80s about BMX bikes? I think it had a yellow poster. Then, oh, I should block out the lines. Yeah, we Just, already gave yeah. away. I know this is often when we do do the trivia. Yeah. Sorry, but we did it a little bit earlier today. And uh, Adrian from Rocky was in it. So we were looking <laughs> to give away two double movie passes. Oh, yeah, that one. And so, and Greg, you you said you really think you're going to be able to give away two passes today with that vague question? Mm-hmm. Well, mission accomplished Get because town. our winner is new. The answer was from the year 1986, a movie called Rad. His name is Crew. Hey, good looking. BMX is his world. Rad is his way of life. The world would be a lot better off without kids. The story of one young man, Crew Jones, who has the intensity and desire to win a BMX race called Hell Track. Oh, good Lord. Adrian, a.k.a. Talia Shire, played Mrs. Jones. Lori Laughlin from Full House was in it, too. Oh, I've changed my entire opinion of this movie. What's it called? Rad. I've not been listening at all until that point. Rad, writing it down. And Arthur Cook and Ron Swayze are the winners of today's passes for Zookeeper's mm. Wife. Also, and this is just kind of funny. When I Googled BMX bike 80s movie, Rad was at the top of the list. But I found another one, and it was from the, the year 1983, starring Nicole Kidman. It's called BMX Bandits. BMX Bandits. They're wild in the streets in a high-flying ride to adventure. It's thrills and spills, fast and furious fun. It's a real blast. I love that stinger at the end. Sounds like a Hasbro commercial again. <laughs> BMX. It's an Australian movie, by the way. In case you never heard of it, that's why. Nicole Kidman. Uh, so rad. So Lori Loughlin is in that, hey? Yep. Loughlin, Laughlin. How do you say it? Loughlin? I think it's Laughlin. Laughlin? I, I don't know. She's if, one of my faves. If you happen to know, you feel free to text us. Loughlin, is it Loughlin, Loughlin or Laughlin? Laughlin. I think it's Laughlin. Uh, here's some trivia you can actually use. Okay. This day in 1952, March 23rd. Mm-hmm. Billy Mozienko of Winnipeg did something that is responsible for me never leaving a sporting event early. 
He scored three goals in 21 seconds against the New York Rangers at Madison Square Garden. Who is he playing for? Chicago Blackhawks. And of course, uh, did I mention he's from Winnipeg? Yes. Yes. Bowling lanes and an arena named after him. They just recently rechristened the gorgeous mural on the south side of the Billy Mozienko bowling lanes, just north of Redwood Street and Main Street. Mm -hmm. Uh, They completely redid it last year. So it's uh, rechristened. So... Yeah, March 23rd, and uh, Chuck LaFleche will tell you that he almost scored a fourth goal about 12 seconds later. Absolutely incredible feat that will never be replicated. What year was this? 1952. So how is that date so important to you? Because that's a little... Well, out of your realm. It's a. It's like it's one of the greatest sporting accomplishments that that's ever taken place. It'll never be done again. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was done by a Winnipegger. That's why it's important to me. Well, that's cool. Good yeah. for you. For uh, you're like a, a volcano and encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, volcano. What were we talking about? Volcano. Oh, the volcano insurance salesman <laughs> on Family Guy. We were watching that clip in the newsroom today. Oh, so it was a productive day. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel as though it's been incredibly productive. Hey, listen. Anytime you can watch Family Guy at work, it's a good day. And I know. If you can sneak that in, I have volcano insurance, or if you want to look up the Family Guy porcupine clip, the porcupine and the pineapple is one of my favorite clips, and I think it's one of Jeff Forte's favorite hey, clips Forte, as well. Hey, Forte, see if you can find that clip of the volcano <laughs> salesman. It's, it's a pretty short one. It's pretty funny, though. So while we're waiting for for that, I think we will pause for a moment here. We've got traffic, weather, and we will but hear But then we from... got to talk to Julian Richard. You make that sound like it's a chore. Oh, not at all. It's the favorite part of my day. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. 343. <laughs> traffic, weather, and Julian Rich up next. While we wait for Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham, Jeff Forte found something for us. Hello, sir. Enough with the foreplay, sailor. What are you selling? (laughs) Well, I was going to try to sell you some handsome cream, but I can see you already bought out the store. Go on. So perhaps you'd be interested in something every homeowner cannot be without. Volcano insurance. Go on. According to my uncle, who's a real whiz with volcanoes, a volcano is coming this way. Hmm. I, too, have an uncle. Come in. How much is this volcano insurance? Uh, I I don't know. Uh, Let's say $200. $200? That's more than I spent on all that handsome cream. I don't have that kind of money. What about that jar of money? No way. That's Lois's rainy day fund. Ah, come on. It never rains in Rhode Island? Well, yeah, but I'm pretty sure we've never had a volcano either. Well, don't you think we're overdue for one? Touché, salesman. (laughs) <laughs> I see you got your hands on the same handsome cream, Brett McGarry. <laughs> yeah, that's a scam, if that's the case. Hi, hey guys. Hey. Hi, Julie. We figured anytime you get to listen and watch Family Guy at work, it's a good thing we wanted to spread the joy. So handsome cream, how about, well, perfume that makes you smell like a bonfire or turpentine or kitten fur? Those are all the things I detest smelling like. You don't want to smell like kitten fur? What about the beach? No. Oh, that's on there. You can smell like the beach. You can... Um, Didn't you can uh, they try like to do that at, at, at Jabot one time? 
Oh, they did that on Ju- uh, oh, I know about I, think I know they, they did, did. It on Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. that's right. Confusing smell like my two favorite TV shows. You can smell like uh, tobacco. You Where are you going sm- with this? Well, these, we're- <laughs> these nasty smells. Why are, you, why are you reciting these? Well, because we are going to have the CEO of the company on that spent 15 years trying to perfect the scent of kitten fur. Why? For what? purpose to sell it apparently uh to it's, whom? i don't know but apparently also on the list that's in development is puppy breath and oh. bacon so you know what the bacon thing i someone bought me uh you can buy all sorts of novelty bacon items and somebody yes. bought me uh bacon soap and for fun, I tried it, and That'll it was disgusting. That'll get you the dates. <laughs> I need some of that bacon, bacon soap for when my kids misbehave and talk back to me. Then I can wash their mouths out with it in and good conscience. And not feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. Well, anyway, we will talk to him at 5.15 and find out is, about... Is he, ho- is he a homeless person, this <laughs> no, individual? there is like pages of these He's different He's probably scents. a millionaire. You know that. I don't- Get it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but, and we'll listen. talk to him about um, some uniquely Canadian scents on the list. Okay, One- stop talking now because we're all hooked already. Okay. We're all okay. hooked. Sounds what good. What time? What time ish? 5.15. All right. All right. What else? Uh, Hi, Richard. We have a very um, important story and it's a warning. It's rare, but in this case it happened on what can happen uh, as a result of strep throat that's following the four o'clock news. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tyler Whitlaw will join us a little bit later on as it starts to warm up what you need to do around your yard. Uh, Several other stories, part two of our conversation with Chris Hatfield, the astronaut, and asking him about the future of the program. And when you go out to a social evening and there is a band and orchestra playing, Mm Mm-hmm. Likelihood is it's going to be one of three bands. Well, Danny Kramer is going to join us after 4.30, the Danny Kramer Dance Band. They've been nominated for Entertainer of the Year for the Canadian Event Industry Awards. Really cool. Long time in coming for this. Uh, uh, Danny this Kramer doesn't know it, but he and I have uh, had a lot of drinks together over the years. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> I probably had all of them, just for the record. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Times, right? Didn't he play at Times for an awful long time in that stage in the front corner there? Yeah. Okay, that's enough confessions today. Yes. That's so, two, uh, so that's no more. We don't need any more today. Just you looking two? For, are you yes. looking for absolution because yeah. you're, you're oh, staring yeah. at the wrong people absolution here? Absolution shall know not that. occur in yeah. any way, shape, or good, form. No, good. no, no, no. I've I've uh, tamed those demons a long time ago. But really? you're really going to want to yeah. listen to I'm really craving a Long Island iced tea all of oh, a sudden. I could, there's a perfume <laughs> for that. I'm so curious about this. Like other than smell vision or going to movies uh, where they might, you know, throw some. I I I don't. We're still working on scratch and sniff radio technology. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I know. I know what people be smelling right now. Please listen at 407 about that strep story. Okay, it's, it's uh, an important one? It is an important one. It's one that we've been seeing come up on my news feeds from all over Canada and the United States, and it was supposedly rare, but uh, people are losing limbs. They're losing digits, all as a result of starting with what seemed to be a sore throat or the flu. They say it's rare again. Five stories that I've read from across Canada and the United States in the last five days. Okay, sounds like a very important story and something that we'll want to pay attention to. All joking aside, Julie Buckingham, Richard Cloutier, they'll get you home smarter than ever. They'll get you home safe and informed. Traveling weather together, sports, entertainment, business, you name it, they got it. 
And speaking of getting home safely, I read that. I don't know if you heard the 3.30 news, but there is a story in there <laughs> about a woman. Well, it's actually, unfortunately for her, it sounds like she was quite harrowing because. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to laugh. No, no. Well, hey, no, it's funny because of what we're going to, we're going to take it to a lot more lighthearted place. But uh, this woman, she, Google Maps veered her off course, a Texas college student. And she ended up spending five days stranded in a remote area near the Grand Canyon which is quite harrowing, and that just got us quickly thinking, and I know we only have about a minute left here, but uh, I, it reminded me of a time where Google Maps did me wrong. I yeah, had to go And that to, could have been tragic as well. Yeah, because of where it took me, because I had to go to Bridges Golf Course, which is in Starbuck off That's of right. Highway 2, I believe. You're correct. And I had never been there during the day. I'd been there once at night in winter, and I wasn't paying attention to where we were going. This time I drove there. Well, Google, I punched in Bridges Golf Course, and Google Maps points me to a location, which was, I suppose, in the general vicinity in the sense that it was southwest of Winnipeg, but it took me to Sanford, <laughs> not Starbucks. Oops. And if you just look up Sanford when it's safe for you to do so in comparison to Starbucks, I had to take all sorts of like dirt roads to get there. And I was, I, I felt like completely lost and stranded. So lucky for me, I wasn't obviously in any kind of Grand Canyon place. And even when you know you're on the right road sometimes and it's a place you've never been and it seems as though it's taking forever and ever and ever, why aren't we there yet? Why aren't we there yet? You get that sinking feeling in your stomach that, oh my gosh, I've I've done something very wrong and I'm nowhere near where I need to be. It's a horrible feeling. I've been there, but we don't have time for a third confession of the afternoon. So uh, we'll we'll leave it there. I'll just quickly confess on my friend's behalf. We were going out to Minnewasta in Morden, and he says, oh, yeah, this is the way. I know the way. <laughs> we, we missed a turn, and he took us 70 kilometers off course. Where'd you go, to Manitou? I don't know where the hell we were, but <laughs> it, we suddenly we were, we were going to be there early. We got there with 30 seconds to spare before our tea time. You ended up golfing in Killarney. <laughs> 355, Mackling and McGarry, Jeff Forte, and Master Control. Thank you, sir. The news is up next.